Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by my co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, back this fall, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Hey, Reed, how are you? And also on the show today is retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He was Director of European Affairs for the National Security Council until he was reassigned in February of 2020. Vindman came to national attention in October 2019 when he testified before Congress regarding the Trump-Ukraine scandal. His testimony provided evidence that resulted in Donald Trump's first impeachment. Colonel Vindman served in the Army for 21 years and is a Purple Heart recipient. He has just published his memoir called Here, Right Matters, An American Story. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you, Reed. Thank you, Rick Wilson. Glad to be on the show. So this is really an honor. I think I'll speak for Rick and me and for everybody on the team. You were the subject of one of the first ads that we ever made, I think in Rick, what was it? February of, I think, 2020. And it was just in the context of you'd already testified and just looking at your uniform with all of the various, you know, I think they call it fruit salad, all the different ribbons you have, but all of the different things that you'd earned while in the military that demonstrated just how much service you have given to the United States. And so from your perspective, as you leave the White House and you're sitting there before Congress, you had to take several leaps. You had to tell yourself, like, I know what's going to happen generally, but here's what I know. I'm not going to work at the White House anymore, and I may not be in the Army much longer. So take us through a little bit of the thought process about how you're sitting in your office at the National Security Council. You're seeing these things happen, and you say, you know what, not one step back, not one step further back for me. Right. So it's interesting. I think the more I talk about it, the more I kind of learn about my own thoughts at that period of time. Most people kind of think history stopped and started with the phone call on January 25th. In fact, this was a slowly unfolding train wreck for many months before, starting with the removal of Ambassador Yovanovitch, and that was based on a story that was fed by Giuliani and his collaborators to John Solomon. And we thought that we frankly avoided some of that. We managed to keep her in place because she was an honorable civil servant. And then Don Jr., the nut job that he is, weighed in. And that basically left Ambassador Ivanovich untenable in Ukraine. And that was just the beginning of it. Then Giuliani became a huge mouthpiece, a part of this corrupt enterprise doing uh, running political errands for Trump. But that wasn't clear just yet either. The next thing was Mike Pence, Vice President Pence, dropping out of the inauguration that Trump had pretty much committed him to attending, and then hold on security assistance and this event that occurred on July 10th, where Sondland basically said out loud what he probably should have kept quiet, which was in exchange for a investigation into Joe Biden, that the president would have a meeting with President Zelensky, who desperately needed this meeting to kind of add legitimacy to his new presidency, untrained political actor. And then the last bit of it, just kind of wrapping up, heading into parliamentary elections, he's willing to go pretty far to kind of get engagement with the U.S. And then lo and behold, on the 25th of July, this phone call that was supposed to land several days before appeared, even though the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, kind of tried to put a stop to it, probably knowing full well the risk because he was much closer to the president. Didn't he call it a drug deal? He did. The July 25th meeting, that was the first time I reported something on the July 10th meeting. But the July 25th meeting was a revelation of sorts for me because as a military officer, you have this 
extremely high regard for the office of the president. And I somehow almost rationalized that these were kind of obsequious, self-serving political actors seeking to ingratiate themselves to the president and that the president basically commanded it and they were doing the president's bidding and the president was the driving force behind this corrupt enterprise. And seeing all this, understanding this unfolding slowly and then like almost a slap in the face, there was no hesitation whatsoever about the need to report this in order just to get things moving. There was a perceived risk to my own career in the White House. Less did I think I was going to also end my military career. But what I did think I was doing is I was reporting it to the right channels. So like this, the president could be convinced to change course, which had happened so many times in the White House. He'd flip flop back and forward on issues. He's weak need and indecisive. And he's only decisive about ranting. And other than that, he could be easily convinced to change course. Alex, let me ask you a question about this whole process, because had you ever encountered anything this sort of lavishly corrupt? I mean, because this was obviously the minute anyone took a look at Sondland and Rudy and when even John Bolton says, I'm not involved in their drug deal. Had you ever seen anything like this? Was there ever anything in your experience? You've done a lot of political diplomatic stuff, political military affairs. And look, there's always some horse trading back and forth in diplomacy. But this was outside of the channels. It was unprecedented when you saw this happening, is my take on it. I will tell you that I've seen this multiple times but never in the United States. These types of events occurred in third world countries where endemic corruption was rampant in authoritarian regime and maybe a struggling backsliding democracy, but never anything like this in the United States. Sometimes people equate this to the last kind of impeachment in our collective memory, which is Richard Nixon. But even there, I don't think you know we approach the kind of the scale of corruption that we saw under the Trump administration. Nixon had the wherewithal to resign before he was impeached, recognize that he'd done something wrong, he was no longer politically viable, but we didn't have that from this president. It was, I guess, a kind of evil that we never thought we would encounter with our chief executive. Remember that Nixon was venal and self-absorbed, but he wasn't crazy. Like, he was obsessed with maintaining power and cleaning up leaks and everything else, but Let's just, for argument's sake, say that even he had finished his second term, like he was going to leave the office on, you know, January 20th, 1977. And so let me ask you this, Alex. First, we should note that you were born in Ukraine. So there's this sort of pathos that is wrapped up with the country that you're now contending with, both as a member of the military, as a member of the national security staff, and now what you're seeing happen. So did that factor into any of your thoughts and emotions as you were dealing with all this? First, let me apologize that I don't have the accent. I could go switch to a Russian accent just to make the far right a little more comfortable. That's right. Well, you know, the NSA is looking after Tucker and now after us. So it's be, it'll be fine. You know, it's interesting. I came here when I was a toddler and my recollection of the country I was born in was very, very limited. I was born and raised in the United States with strong kind of understanding of my roots as an immigrant and, you know, that my family not too long before me had a completely different experience. But everything I did was basically, you know, geared on what's in the best interest of the United States. What's interesting is I think some of my colleagues, when they testified, they couched their testimony based the import of Ukraine on maybe a kind of an ideological spectrum that we need to help Ukraine because Ukraine is a struggling democracy. I couched my testimony purely on 
the import of Ukraine to U.S. national security interests. And that's what should resonate with Americans, what advances U.S. national security interests. In this case, it coincided quite closely. Helping Ukraine push back against Russian aggression there makes Russia less capable of attacking U.S. interests here. There's a famous Zygmunt Brzezinski line, a national security advisor for Jimmy Carter, who was a Sovietologist well-versed in this area. It should never be understated that Russia without Ukraine is not an empire, but with Ukraine subordinated and suborned automatically becomes an empire. And that right there encapsulates the import of Ukraine or the import of keeping Ukraine out of Russia's grubby hands because they're just that much more potent and adversary. Well, and was there something I saw last week, just as an aside, television ads, was it some sort of newspaper deal or maybe it was online, where Putin was extolling the, the virtues of Ukraine's past as a longstanding part of Russia, not an independent state. And you go back through and you see all these things about how they tie back various leaders of the past to try and create those roots that allow them to give that sort of underpinning for, well, you know, Ukraine's really always been part of Russia. Right. That's a good catch and an important thing to, to highlight that Putin continues this narrative that Ukraine isn't a real country and really that Russia has every right to reacquire Ukraine, a separate, independent, sovereign state where even as early as 91, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, you have some 90 percent of the population voting for independence from the Soviet Union. Really, I think it came down to, yeah, sure, Putin has a large sort of global strategy, but it really did come down to the, in the last play in some ways to wanting America to stay out of Ukraine so the little green men could take Crimea, so that he could continue to grind and grind and grind away and nip at the edges of Ukraine and shut off their power grid and do all the things without a strong American sanction. I mean, let me ask you a question. Were you at the White House when he did the meeting in Helsinki? <laughs> Uh, that was my very first day on the job at the White House, actually. It's <laughs> wow. a hell of a first day. Okay. Hell of a way to start, right? I was supposed to join and do the typical HR in processing. You know, your equal opportunity, all that kind of stuff. I think I got to the first two or three meetings and then the president held his press conference, which I, which I was watching it from my office. And I watched this whole thing unfold and that you know, the day didn't, didn't go quite the way I thought it was. I think a lot of Americans had a moment of real shock because, you know, Trump played himself as this hyper-masculine, swaggering, macho figure. And you as a professional in that field, you must have been looking at him at that moment thinking, oh, God, this guy's getting jacked. This guy's getting played because Putin's body language was so much more confident. Trump was so – he just rolled and rolled and rolled. I mean, I guess that was a sort of a preview of what was to come. Kind of like a Frankenstein monster with his shoulders kind of angled in and leaning over and stuff like that. I mean, you could tell this is not the kind of reverence I started with for the office of the president. But for Trump, I have nothing but utter disdain. The kind of damage he's done to this country, I hate to call him President Trump, even though he served in that office. It's just I've got nothing positive to say about him based on what he's doing to this country. He has blood on his hands for the hundreds of thousands of dead emerging out of COVID because of mismanagement. So that's where I am. That's how I talk about the guy. You know, it's interesting that by far the biggest prize for Russia would be pulling Ukraine back into its orbit because of what it means for you, for Russian power. And in a lot of ways, we averted a massive foreign policy disaster in that if Trump was going to basically let Putin have his way there, this scandal unfolding elevated the understanding of Ukraine 
in a way where he no longer could get away with it, neither Putin nor Trump. And as much as Putin got out of Trump, this was supposed to be the biggest prize. And I think Putin overplayed his hands. So, you know, it's interesting, Alex. So going back to when all this started going down, you know, in early 2019, even before we started the Lincoln Project, we were hearing rumors in the sort of political ether that Joe Biden's got this Ukraine problem and that it's going to be ugly and it very well could end his campaign before it even really gets going. And the irony is if Giuliani never goes to Ukraine, if Sondland never does what he does, if the ambassador is never fired, if Trump just sits quietly, there's a good chance that the other Democratic candidates would have eaten Biden for it. So the grand irony here is that Trump got exactly what he didn't want. He never wanted to face Biden in a general election. He thought he could use these machinations in Ukraine to somehow get Biden. And ironically enough, Biden survives it. The Democrats have to circle the wagons around him. And then voila, we have President Biden, the 46th president of the United States. That's Trump in a nutshell. And this is one of the points I make in the book is that it's Trump's own personal involvement in affairs that typically derails them. Well, because everything Trump touches As dies. If everything Trump touches <laughs> dies. <laughs> so, I mean, he's absolutely his own worst enemy. He certainly has this rabid base that, you know, there's nothing he could do. He could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. But he is his own worst enemy oftentimes. And he's the worst enemy of good operations of the government and the American people. But that was my experience with him. Alex, let me ask you this. I mean, just in the context of the White House and your experience there with Ukraine. So you have Ambassador Yovanovitch, you have Fiona Hill, you have yourself, three people who were willing to stand up, say the things that needed to be said, answer the questions that needed to be answered, understanding all of the ugliness and approbation that would come from what is, as you're probably experienced at a closer level than most people ever will, the machine that is the right wing politics and media conglomerate. Did you ever look around at people in your office next to you, you know, other people on the national security staff and say, hey, guys, we can't let this happen. And everybody goes, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, there weren't those kinds of conversations because the president is the chief executive. And if he actually, you know, took the time to provide some foreign policy guidance and it wasn't illegal, we would have to follow it. But because it went through this irregular channel and ultimately when his hand appeared, it was in a corrupt way that, frankly, I had considered could have been criminal. You know, what I'm, I guess I'm addressing is this fundamental question of whether there is a, a deep state. We're all public servants looking to do the best we can. Whenever the chief executive's attention is not on the issue, we have a mandate to kind of coordinate and advance policy interests for the good of the United States. In this case, we were moving in one direction. We didn't really get any pointers in the other direction except for these fringe actors like Giuliani and Sondland, who's maybe not even bad attention, just ill-equipped to do his job there. Then the president jumps in and just nukes everything with his own participation. You know, it's interesting that you read that you raised this question about what actors may have upheld their oaths and acted responsibly and which actors didn't. And that's part of the story I try to tell in my book. I try to lay out a thought process not all that dissimilar to my professional colleagues about formative experiences in my life. Masha Ivanovich, Fiona Hill, and I share the immigrant background. We all were committed public servants for various durations. We all have a desire for self-improvement, learning, professionalism. And then I talk about my own personal experiences 
both kind of fails and, and successes that I assembled all together into a toolkit that I could leverage to make the decisions I did and, you know, kind of navigate an untenable situation, an unprecedented situation in the best way I could. I believe we've spoken with your wife several times, uh, Rachel, who is a force of nature, if there ever was one. Yes. And so as you're going through this experience, and look, I think that Rick and I can speak to this at a, at a different level, but similar, which is these sorts of things, when you believe you're in the right, when you believe you're doing the right thing, have a toll, not only on yourself, but also on those that are around you and love you and want to support you. So how did she come through all this? How did your daughter deal with all this? I know obviously you have a twin brother who also served in the military. How did they handle it? How did you try and give them this sort of, you know, listen, I, I know this is hard for all of us, but this is the right thing to do. We have to do this. You know, it's interesting that at various points, I received a lot of input from friends and family. And ultimately, I had to take my own counsel on what I thought was right and live with my decisions. But at the same time, preserve all those essential relationships that, you know, make me who I am with my twin brother, with my daughter, with my father, with my lovely wife. And that was a very delicate management of a crisis situation in which I knew what I was going to do pretty early on. And I wasn't going to deviate from what I thought was right. But at the same time, listen to counsel for caution from my dad, from my brother, from my wife about, you know, whether there are some other ways to manage the situation. All of them were geared towards helping me make kind of the best decision possible. But from the standpoint of, maybe mitigating some risk. If I probably followed some of that earlier advice, I may have been able to stay in the military. Certainly the military itself would have appreciated a much, much more diluted response, meaning, you know, yes, no answers, reluctant participation, but that would be a disservice to my obligation, you know, in testifying into my oath. And, you know, all of this together kind of helped me kind of navigate things the way I did. In in terms of the effects on my immediate family, certainly there was a enormous amount of anxiety about the risks that we were taking on, you know, setting aside career, the fact that we received hate mail, the fact that we received abhorrent attacks from the Twitter sphere. But, you know, it's interesting. There's that Taylor Swift song. You say it in the street, it's a knockout. You say it in a tweet, it's a cop out. <laughs> I did not have Alex Vindman tossing a Taylor Swift reference. On that was, I think that might be Tuesday. the first Taylor Swift mention <laughs> on the podcast. So. But not the last. That's my daughter's favorite artist. Well, so mine too. But if Miss <laughs> Swift would like to join us, we'd certainly love to have her. <laughs> so it's interesting. In a lot of ways, we're almost ideally positioned based on my background and my service. You know, you get special training when you go to Moscow. Right. Moscow rules, right? Moscow rules. Right. So I was prepared for the increased physical threats potentially and to assess the credibility of those. And then also really well equipped to manage even the the House Republicans attacks. You know, the problem is in uniform, you have no ability to counterpunch or really defend yourself. That's the military's job. The service member has no voice and they didn't do that. Pretty much ended my career that the military didn't say I was in good standing and you know, I still had a career in front of me. I was just doing my duty, made my position untenable, and that made life extremely difficult for us. They were very much playing the Washington political game because a lot of those guys were playing the, oh, shit, I'm up for my first star. Do I really want to fuck with the White House? Or fourth star. Yeah, or fourth star. 
Right. Well, and that's also something, too, that I think, you know, whether or not that institution is the White House, whether or not that institution is the Pentagon, whether or not that institution is the inside the beltway political set, which for decades was happy to hand power back and forth between Republicans and Democrats, so long as they were the only ones in charge, right? It was their game and the rest of us were just dealing with it. But let me ask you this, because now what we're seeing is Aside from everything that Donald Trump did to incite crisis inside the United States, inside the White House, inside the bridge between the military and the civilian leadership, you know, it looked like in the wake of his loss last winter, it seems that Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, was pretty concerned that he was going to be asked to do something that he wasn't willing to do. Now, this is, of course, also in the aftermath of Milley appearing in uniform on Pennsylvania Avenue as protesters are being gassed. So I think his road back to redemption, in my mind anyway, is not complete. But what does that mean for you as a former you know, officer in the United States Army who not only has combat experience, a Purple Heart, served in, you know, not only in Iraq, but also in a political setting? Like, what does that mean to you? This is a challenging space for me because I love and honor the institution of uh, of the Army and the Department of Defense. It's filled with honorable, capable, brilliant, selfless individuals, but it's also filled with flawed individuals. And I mean, not flawed as in deeply flawed, like, you know, Donald Trump, but human people that are prone to errors and people that, you know, are over the course of a um, decades long career pick up a careerist streak and see the light at the end of the tunnel where they potentially could kind of cash in uh, with regards to the military industrial complex if they achieve those high ranks and, and serve on boards. And there's desire to, you know, to provide for families. There's a desire to protect the institution, frankly, one man, lieutenant colonel, serving honorably, upholding the values versus the bigger institution. I sense all of that. And where I guess I come down is the institution has done an enormous amount of good for me. It is what kind of holds the enemy at bay, but it has room to improve. It has room to grow. I think the example of not supporting me, not backing me, when I was clearly doing the right thing, just sent the worst kind of signal to the officer corps. And I've heard this from folks. You know, it kind of showed the military willing to bend, not to preserve its apolitical standing, but for the senior leadership to protect itself. That's what, in certain ways, precipitated Trump believing he could use the military in Lafayette Park and use the military for insurrection because they demonstrated that they were weak need on several occasions and that there was some erosion to ethics and values that he could continue to push. These are things that need to be addressed. We are not in a crisis, in a state of war, and this is the time to address some of these issues and solve these issues. It's hard to reconcile the fact that my twin brother and I, you know, were forced out of the White House. I basically was told that, you know, I didn't have a career left. I could stay in the military as kind of a sinecure, continue to serve as a colonel. And they give you a desk and say, sit here and don't talk to anybody in the uh, E-ring or something, right? No, no, no. The, definitely not the Pentagon. No, you would have been in the annex. <laughs> yeah, it was not even there. Their first instinct was to assign me to the army museum in Fort Belvoir, like 20 miles away that hadn't even opened. Right. And I kind of like, I think I snorted <laughs> when they first proposed it. It's like something out of a bad movie. 
that was their instinct. But you know, it's interesting at the same time. And and Eugene is is facing challenges. My twin brother's facing challenges. He's promoted to colonel, but you know, this is his story to tell. But even he is kind of like sent out to a, a less than prestigious assignment, well away from DC. And you know, folks refused to participate in his promotion ceremony and stuff like that. It turned out okay. We had the second gentleman show up, and Tim Kaine presided. But the folks in his chain of command didn't want to have anything to do with it. But at the same time, though, you have Charlie Flynn start out as a more junior general in that one term under Trump, where his brother, Michael Flynn, is basically, you know, he is Trump's general. He's the guy that anybody would identify with regards to in uniform. But Charlie Flynn, his brother, moves up through the ranks and gains four-star command while my twin brother and I are pushed aside. Where's the justice in that? I think that's wrong. Well, and weren't there reports, too, that the junior Flynn was at the Pentagon on January 6th? Oh, he was. There's no question about it. When calls started coming in about the National Guard and what needed to be done at the Capitol. I mean, in all of the armed forces, I don't think I can imagine a worse general officer sitting at the center of that as, you know, Congress is being stormed. It's interesting. I think all the accounts of Charlie Flynn I heard are excellent. You know, he's a stellar officer. But frankly, there are many stellar officers and it's hard to reconcile my twin brother and I being ostracized and, you know, pulled aside and this totally capable officer getting elevated because somebody calculated that it it would help them, it would ingratiate them with the administration. That was definitely part of the calculation. Having grown up in Washington, D.C. and worked there for several years myself, I have a theory and it's called the FUMU principle and it's fuck up, move up. It's not exclusive to Washington, but it has been perfected in Washington. And so let me just say this, Alex, is that if you had lied to the FBI, if you had spoken to the Russians out of turn, if you had tried to arrange extraordinary rendition on an American resident on behalf of a Turkish president, then you'd probably be a three-star general right now. Well, I mean, (laughs) actually, it could be the Secretary of Defense because these are not bad human beings, folks I work with, but Chris Miller the last SecDef under Trump, he was a director with me on the National Security Council. Same exact position in a different office. But he managed to get himself elevated to the Secretary of Defense. And, you know, I guess if I played my cards right, I could have ended up there. Who knows? But that's, I think that's, to me, the bottom line of the story is that too often what we see in the United States, and maybe this has always been true, is that the people who are willing to stand up and say no more, the people who are willing to stand up and say I see what's happening and I'm not going to allow it. You know, the people who blow the whistle, right? There's a reason why we have whistleblower protections, although they seem to be more in word than ever in deed. That's why most people don't do what you did, because it's a lot easier to go with the flow and say there will either be active or tacit appreciation for my lack of action. And, you know, eventually I'll rationalize it to myself. That has to be its own rewards, though, because you don't get rewarded for being a whistleblower. I've never never heard of a whistleblower getting rewarded for blowing the whistle, even though in reality, if we probably listen to our whistleblowers more often, we could avoid, you know, in the economic sphere, we could avoid catastrophes. Somebody at Volkswagen probably said, look, if we mess with the emission standards, somebody's going to eventually fall out. And that brand was damaged to the tune of billions of dollars. So if we probably listened to our whistleblowers and, uh, you know, kind of at least supported the notion of folks standing up based on principle, I think we would be in a lot better place. But it has to be its own reward because nothing has been easy. I mean, I could have, if I had stayed silent, I would have completed senior service college, war college. 
I would have now be on a, my first assignment as a colonel in a really kind of important critical assignment. Not an easy one, by the way. It would be a, a very challenging one in a, in a very challenging portion of the world, but something where I could do some good. Now I find myself opening the second chapter to the book that is my life and figuring out what I want to do. And everything has been kind of a struggle and a challenge. But I could tell you that I could look at myself in the mirror. I could look at my beautiful daughter in, the, in her eyes. I don't have to rationalize, equivocate. You know, that's much more important than anything else. You know, Alex, I think you, you've been one of the most public figures who stood up and did the right thing. For a while, I think America got accustomed to seeing public officials and military leaders and elected officials always take the shortcut. Always, oh, it wasn't me. Oh, no, I, that never happened. Uh, you know, it's somebody else's fault. Or I can't come up against the boss. What am I supposed to do? I mean, Reed and I have a lot of friends in politics or had in Washington who would say things like, you know, I don't like Trump, but I, I got just got to go along, man. I got, I got a mortgage to pay. I got mouths to feed. You got to pay for that new Audi, right? Exactly. The granite countertop in Loudoun County is not going to pay for itself. Those restorations on townhouses in Old Town don't come cheap. You know, I think it's one of the things I've always just really loved about you as an American and as a soldier and as a person is you didn't have to do any of this. The easiest thing in the world would have been to just nod your head and go, yeah, okay, that's what the boss wants, obviously, and just let it go. And you didn't and you couldn't. And that speaks, I think, so highly of your character. And I think you're a great example for folks to look at that heroism and honor matter still. And you know what? As as I always say this too, I'm not comparing us directly, but I sleep pretty good at night. You know, I really do. I don't feel bad about what we've done. The people that have stuck with the corruption, fuck them. You did the right thing here. And I just really want to thank you personally and, and on behalf of the Lincoln Project. So Alex, before we let you go, and I just want to remind everybody, Alex's new book is Here, Right Matters, an American story that's just coming out. What do you see next for yourself and for your family? Sure. So let me just make a short plug for the book. It's deeper than just Trump. This is a story about kind of doing the right thing and coming out on the far side, not with rewards, but being able to live with yourself. So if you want to find out, you know, how somebody might do that, I try to draw some lessons from my life, you know, the tools that I assembled to manage with this. In terms of next steps, it's a bit of a great unknown for me. I'm working on a doctorate. I'm all about thesis, all about dissertation for my doctorate in international affairs. So I'm working on that second book, and it's about Russian-Ukraine, frankly, and the effects of the Russian-Ukrainian relationship on U.S. foreign policy. So to me, it's always back to, you know, what, what it means for the U.S. In addition to that, I'm at a think tank. I'm doing some consulting. And I'm really kind of just trying to explore what the future might be and sometime in the next year decide which one of those kind of areas I want to pursue, whether there's another way I could do some good advocating for public service, you know, advocating for U.S. foreign policy interests, advocating for values-based leadership. I mean, I'm definitely not one to shriek back if attacked and to call somebody out if they're doing something inappropriate. I think that's my job. I didn't realize how much of an emphasis and an effort accountability would be for me moving forward. I thought we win the election, you know, America wins the election, Biden replaces Trump and somehow we snap our fingers, we're back on track. It's not the case. There's not enough going on on the accountability front. So that's a place where I want to be helpful. I want to be helpful with candidates that unseat the nefarious actors that fail to live up to their oaths, particularly even the, the veterans that I hold to a higher standard. So these are different things I'm thinking about. 
you know, long way of saying, I don't know. Be careful what you wish for, because just on those things alone, we could keep you busy. But well, listen, <laughs> Alex Venman, thank you for joining us. Uh, where can we find you online? So on Twitter at a Venman. Certainly the book is at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, a bunch of different places. Twitter is a good place to find me. All right, perfect. And Rick, where can our listeners find you? As always, at the Rick Wilson on Twitter. And gang, you as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Alex, Rick, thanks for joining me today. And everybody out there, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.